You're now listening to the Something Good Podcast Network. Please press any key to continue. A kiss, as defined by Dan Webster, is something pleasing, a caress, a gentle touch. But there's another kiss that isn't in Webster's. Hey world, we're kids! Some critics say they don't make music, they just make noise. Yeah, kiss! Kiss employs the extreme in the theatrics on stage, utilizing fire and smoke and bizarre costumes and the ever-consistent, constant concealment of their true identities. Speaking of which, Kiss is going to have its own comic book soon. Take Kiss with you. It's fun. Show your friends and be the first. Now. And welcome once again to... No time to turn a kiss nerd podcast. We nerds. We embrace our inner kiss nerd. It's the rock and roll equivalent of Trekkies. <laughs> it, it really, we really is. are. Yeah. I don't think I think Kiss is the one band that kind of has that Trekkie cult following, at least more than any other band. I think. I'm Russ Ward. I am, I guess, for lack of a better term, I'm the host. Joined by my co-hosts. From the Something Good For You podcast, Alex Stiff and Cap Nunn. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. And uh, we are going on a little journey. Yes. Charting the history of KISS, album by album, year by year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully you caught our introduction show, kind of introduced to our, who we were and our own personal history somewhat. Yeah, and get a little vibe of our yeah. personalities and where we stand as KISS fans and where we came from. KISS nerds. Yeah, yes. <laughs> is, is that going to be one of the uh, self-imposed, self-imposed rules? So, like, in Walking Dead, they don't say zombies. And in the uh, well, the WWE, they don't say wrestlers. wrestling. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> so, so, it's like, are we, are we not going to say fan? Is it, do we only want to refer to it as KISS I think, nerds? I think of KISS fans as, like, fair weather fans that know, like, you know, the 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 high spot songs the yeah. rock and roll over okay. Detroit Rock City or whatever Kiss nerds that's a whole nother thing but they know the eighties <laughs> material we are we are we are the nerds like we are the nerds we know too much about this damn band well, probably I, well no we don't claim to be experts we don't no. know everything honestly we're just just big fans I've and as if you listen to the introduction episode I've been into this since I was a small child in the mid 70s uh alex came aboard in the mid 90s i guess uh, late 90s late 90s probably, yeah and cap sort of came in mid-2000s. early 2000s yeah early mm-hmm. to mid 2000s i was a late bloomer yeah so we're all from different eras with different perspectives and different opinions mm-hmm. exactly and uh we'll uh gauge all that as we advance and we're gonna just start in now with the debut Kiss album. Yes, self-titled. And we're probably warrant to do a little back history on it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A little bit of where they were and how they got here. I was going to say, it probably needs to start with uh, in 1970 then, doesn't it? Well, or even before that. Well, you could, I mean, if we wanted to gauge kind of the whole, you know, I'm going to use some $3 words here. I'm going to drop my big... Three dollar words. Uh-oh. If you want, if you want to discuss the uh, cultural zeitgeist, of <sighs> no, but it, you know, you're coming out of the '60s. It's sort of post hippie. Uh, you kind of see the the rise of what was called glitter rock in America, 
I guess they call it glam in Britain. Right. Well, glam has a different connotation in America because you think of 80s hair bands. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, so, you know, coming into this somewhat new thing or new whole new thing is is the guys that are going to form KISS. But it's interesting to look at where they were coming from because they all had been participating in other groups. Uh, most famously, uh, Wicked, Lester. Wicked Lester. Everyone knows Kiss had the band Wicked Lester. With they recorded an unreleased album. Uh, Peter was in a band called Chelsea, not to be confused with the British punk band of the same name. Right uh, there, that did release an album. Uh, Ace had been in a variety of different acts, and uh, just recently, the quote unquote lost recordings of his band. Molimo? Mo? Mm-hmm. Is that how you say it? Yeah, I, I believe so. That I, sounds I've right. always wondered how that was pronounced. Uh, you know, the name had been in circles for years. He, you know, he'd played in this band, and then it pops up. And what's interesting to me is how different all these bands are, not necessarily to each other, but how they different they how it differs to what became Kiss. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because it, it gives no real hint of where, where they're going to go as Kiss. Mm-hmm. The only... The only- obvious one really is wicked lester only because they use material from those sessions and future kiss records yeah, but, but they're completely redone and exactly. if you listen to you know like with aces group it sounded very much like jefferson airplane yeah it's very seems like a very big influence peter's group was almost like a almost like a country rock kind of thing and I like because that was the thing at the time, yeah, right? Yeah, there was a lot of that. Very California. Well, it's that post hippie thing, and. Um, and the same with um, Wicked Lester, you know, which kind of has a something of a, I don't think it's fair to say a Jethro Tull vibe, but they just Only because the it has the flutes flute and stuff. <laughs> but, you know, and apparently there's two different mixes of the Wicked Lester recordings with, I think, two different guitar players. Interesting. What was the name of the guy that was on the uh, first record? I just watched a doc with him on it. On the uh, Wicked Lester album, Stephen Cornell. Yes. I, that's what it was. Yeah, and he was he was the guy that introduced Gene to Paul, or, mm-hmm. or and Paul they, to Gene, or and, and famously, at least according to both Gene and Paul, they did, they not, did not get like along. each other. Yeah, and so it's interesting that this union formed at all, and it's interesting to see how they were kind of uh, following what they uh, any path they thought would lead to quote unquote success right that was kind of their one uh, common thread was like they're going to work hard to get the what to what they want and and you know and it seemed like they were following kind of what they thought to be conventional wisdom of the time and at some point they make this hard left turn yeah and you know that the, conventional wisdom being what what it, it, with wicked lester is yeah. more it sounds a lot more commercial as far as you For the know, times. Yeah, I mean, almost po- kind of polish those demos up appeal. a little more. Yeah, it would could totally hit the stations. Once they once they made a left turn into they're going to be a quote unquote hard rock band, right? You know that was a that was not necessarily always a commercially viable proposition, right? Because this was like this know. is before they obviously had to have made that decision before they thought of it being theatrical. Mm-hmm. Oh you no! Know, I, I'm sure I, that those very rapidly, uh, you know. But 
hard rock was just becoming a thing too, like with the Led Zeppelins of the world and things like that. Yeah, I think they were probably taking their cues more from like Humble Pie. Right. Yeah, they've, they've mentioned that in Sweet. And Slade. Mm-hmm. Slade. Slade seems to be the most highly influential, but I mean, I don't know to what degree. It just it might be a coincidence that they're so similar. I think I think it played at least a huge role with Paul, uh, even down to the way you know he announces and you know speaks to the audience, and he even tried the top hat for a minute. Yeah, I know. There, there I was some shows, I think, on the dine. Yeah, there was a. Well, that's later on. That's way later. Yeah, but I would still say that would still be a callback. Uh, maybe. It could also come from T Rex. Mm, that could also be true. You know, Mark Boland was a probably a big influence on more so British rock than American. He didn't have yeah. as, the impact in America that he had in Europe. But got, I think that's the interesting thing about But I'm sure those Kiss guys is, were, they were hip to it. I was going to say, Kiss was, was very on. influenced by a lot of British rock at that time. No way they weren't. And, you know, the Dolls were doing the same thing, too, dressing up like the members of, you know, another band I love from that era, Matha Hoople. Yeah. Well, who I think Matha Hoople kind of steered themselves into a glam thing after after a moment. I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not as familiar with their history. But all that was feeding into the American kind of consciousness slowly it wasn't as uh probably as successful in america as it had been in europe but there was obviously bands picking up taking their cues from it most obviously the new york dolls but there was a in new york in that era there that wasn't just the dolls there was you know there was a little scene that was had evolved with bands like the harlots of 42nd street and uh the brats yeah uh, and um Kiss actually did a few shows with the Brats. They did shows with the Brats. Um, Before, like, there was a band called Luger that had Ivan Crawl, who was in later in the Patti Smith group. Um, the guys from some of the guys from that would be in the Ramones. Tommy Ramone was in a band called Butch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there was a band called The Fast. Was that the one that does uh, "Boys Will Be Boys"? I, you know, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. I think I remember that. There's, though. There's, We're there's, educated on Kiss. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm just. I'm kind of going off of names that I know, yeah. and then some of these bands I have heard. Uh, I think there's some surviving recordings of uh, the Harlots, and um, a big a big group in, in New York in the time was uh, Eric Emerson and the Magic Tramps, who I have to confess I've never heard any of their stuff. That's for and, yeah, me too. <laughs> and they were they were pretty influential in there and for a minute and they were kind of the the big band in New York. You know, and then conversely though, there was uh other bands that were kind of either peaking or just starting, which would be like Mountain. Yeah. Leslie West, I'm sure was you know, I, I know was a big influence on on a lot of some of the stuff that Kiss was doing early on. Especially guitar sounds, but they yeah. weren't glam by any means. No, not at all. That's what I'm saying. There's kind of the antithesis to the New York kind of glitter rock thing that was going on. You had uh, Mountain and then uh, Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah. yeah I, I think that was more of a, I, I might be wrong, but it seems like that was, I think it was more of a Long Island thing. Early Twisted Sister was kind of being influenced by that, but I don't think they were, I think this is still a little like, early in the game. Yeah. The Dictators came up. And I was about to ask about them. They were going to have their, I don't, I can't remember what year their first album comes out. I think it's not until 75. So Kiss probably still beat them to the punch, but they were, they were, you know, they were, just getting started probably in the same sort of era about uh jane county and uh jane county and the electric chairs were were doing their 
thing at the same time. There's a an early incarnation. I guess it was Kiss. Once they got the four locked into place, one of their earliest shows was at a loft on on Bleecker Street on the Lower on the Lower East Side with Wayne County, and everybody was there. They that was that's where all. You know, I think that's where everyone got their first taste of Kiss because they were somewhat outside of that Mercer Arts thing that the Dolls were doing, right? Maxes and Mercers, but they were still all playing the Coventry over in Queens, which was a, a club in Queens that uh, these bands were playing. I don't think Kiss were doing as well as some of these other bands were in, in Coventry, and you know, I think it seems to- like it was pretty adversarial. And to a certain extent, because Kiss were kind of outside the the cool scene or whatever. Yeah, just, you wind up hearing them talking about renting out the diplomat a lot. Yeah, well, they weren't the only ones. They always make it sound like they were the they were that was their idea. There are other bands that were doing that too. Um, but like that, their problem was they couldn't fit into any scene with their whole. You well, know, they kind of did. They were trying to. They just were taking it. They were less androgynous. You know, I think they flirted with that ever bri- ever so briefly. There's photographs yeah, there's a, yeah, that show that. Did. But they immediately went into the much more, uh, for lack of a better term, butch. Right. Black yeah, leather. Uh, yeah, P- Peter's gone to say, he's like, when we tried the glam thing for a few shows, he's like, it looked like bulldogs and tutus. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> these were big, big dudes. Yeah, and that was, that, was, uh, that was one thing that also kind of set them aside. They looked a lot a lot more butch than a lot of these smaller, wiry, androgynous guys. And so, you know, they they were developing their own kind of unique persona and it was it was influenced by the glitter rock thing, but they were taking it to a whole nother to a whole nother level. Probably, you know, also and cannot be understated the influence of Alice Cooper. Yeah. You know, the theatrics of Alice Cooper and uh, with sort of the more of a anglicized, you know, British rock kind of hard rock sound. Right. And uh, the the presentation was, again, even Alice still had something of a, um, I don't I don't know how you would describe it other than, you know, before he kind of got into the horror rock kind of thing, it was still kind of a quasi gay fake kind, of, still a kind thing. of like an androgynous yeah. you know, thing to it and you know and all of that was all to put outrage and shock into the element that poster uh jeff clayton has where uh, alice is kind of looks like he's wrapped up in uh plastic wrap or that's uh, early on they were doing again yeah the androgyny was kind of with he's holding the daisy over his yeah, head yeah that's kind of the atmosphere they're kind of moving into but that's still very much a New York thing. Yeah. And I think a lot of people thought this was going to take over the United States the way it had in England, and it didn't. You know, the Dolls were the, probably the first one to get signed. Yeah. And, you know, once they got outside of New York City, it, was, do a, anything. it was a very uphill battle. Wasn't there a scene that called on in L.A. too, or is that later on for uh, glam and glitter and things like that? I think, I mean, there was probably, in you know, it it was underground it was kind of a permeating under the surface everywhere i would imagine to a certain extent but more so in the areas like la or new york or chicago that were kind of more media right you know media centers 
Gotcha. But it seemed like uh, New York is what produced the largest kind of effort at it. But none of these bands got signed and didn't, didn't really carry over. But a lot of these bands, I think it's important to note, sort of also were at the advent of what became punk rock. And that'll you. I think that proves especially true. You talk about in L.A., especially in L.A. I think a lot of the early punk scene was like glam damaged kids. Mm-hmm. Um, Detroit and places like that too. I don't think Detroit ever really picked up on that. You don't think so? Detroit was always very much more, you know, butch. Yeah, very <laughs> earthy. You know, you know. It get kind of glammed up a little bit. Uh, I mean, I think that, like I said, I think it ended up influ- kind of that kind of came afterwards. Came probably. I mean, there was a point where Todd Rod- Todd Rundgren, you know, had a kind of a glammy look, but he never really played a glam rock style. No. Um, it but that but you know, you saw that there was a certain element of of glitter or whatever you want to call it that that eventually it kind of. You know, became part of a, a a generalized look, a rock and roll look. I mean, there's even a part where point where you know Mick Jagger had glitter on his face or mm-hmm. whatever. So yeah, I mean, there, the influence was there, but as far as really permeating in America, where a band really crossed over and made a giant stride in that, I don't think you know even Bowie in his earliest efforts did not connect. You know, it wasn't until he flipped and did the kind of young americans album which was more of a r&b influence yeah that he started connecting commercially in america so kiss was well i guess alice cooper like you said it was androgynous so kiss was really the first one to you know get an audience you know with well, makeup. alice when he you know he went more towards the horror rock thing alice in 73 was arguably arguably the alice cooper band was the biggest band in the world yeah and then to me that's the alice group you know he wasn't still he wasn't yet a solo thing it was alice cooper was the name of the band and alice being one in the same so yeah but yeah that was very 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 big in 73 so like i said you can't be understated how much of an influence that had on kiss uh but musically i don't think you could really compare alice cooper to kiss no it's two different flavors circus well, you know what I'm saying? Well, not until, yeah, no, so later, Alice, yeah, so yeah. when they all got homogenized into shitty hair metal. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, no, I think the, uh, and it's kind of interesting too, Kiss as a whole never really mentions Alice Cooper as an influence. The only member I can really think of off the top of my head to mention Alice Cooper is Peter. It feels well, like Peter's the one that said, like, we saw Alice Cooper and they, we wanted to make a band with four of them. Yeah, they saw him. They went, I know they went to see him in what was probably that 73 tour, the Billion Dollar Babies. And, you know, I'm sure that made a big impact. Um, but to what degree? I mean, I don't know at what point that they already had the idea that they were going to be a theatrical kind of group. It seemed like they already, you know, that was those wheels had already started turning. They were they were already probably experimenting with makeup, but you know, it it helped refine their image a little bit, I'm sure. And you know, that was still in in the process of refinement. Yeah, you know, that was that. You know, that's one of the things. They, you know, the the Kiss mythology seems to suggest they were born fully formed, right out of the box, ready to go. Oh no, even the makeup had to it change. You could see Edward a lot Kiss of senior. the, yeah. Well, you could see a lot of the evolution as, as to what was, you know, trial and error and what they were trying to attempt. But I think you know, obviously, by the time they had the first album out, though, they clearly had it 
basically in play. I know. Well, they yeah. knew where they were. You know, it was now you except you know, Peter, but well, that was only that one album. Exactly, shot. but you know that that the, still makes me laugh. We can we we can talk a little bit about that, but before they make the first album, it it uh, and I don't have the date. You might could pull this up. They did the recording at Electric Lady. Yep, uh, it was completed on March thirteenth, seventy three. So think about this: March of seventy three, spring of seventy three. This is around the same time they played that Loft show. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were owed some time from doing uh session work right and their manager at the time was a guy named lou lynette and he arranged for the time to be paid out in studio time as opposed to money right and by happenstance eddie kramer was the house engineer at electric lady so he wound up being the producer of this thing that was the story i i've heard was that uh somebody from wicked lester had to hook them up with uh eddie kramer uh, I've got a quote here. It says, uh, it was a result of Eddie's work on this demo that Neil Bogart offered him a job producing Kiss Alive, and he recalled it was done as a favor because their producer, Ron Johnson, was working Electric Lady at the time, and I think eventually became the manager of the studio for a while. He approached me because Kiss's previous band, Wicked Lester, was a soft, folky thing, and Gene had this concept of uh, the Kiss band. I remember seeing drawings of the various characters they all had planned out, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, so it seems like it was a connection from uh, Ron Johnson. Ron Johnson go. was the producer for the for for the Wicked Lester album. Yeah, and it, it would not be fair to call him a manager, but I think he was. Yeah, that was the connection, mm-hmm. and they they rode the time, and, and I think he was he was probably the one helping get you know supply them with session work. Right, but weren't uh, Paul and Gene very vocal or very adamant about uh, getting Eddie Kramer no, and nobody else? I don't else? think I, that's the way they say it, but I don't think that's the way it happened. I think they got it because, like I said, Eddie Kramer was the house engineer there. Okay, because I've heard was, them talk uh, about, was, like, we demand this guy. Yeah, well, no, <laughs> I don't think they could have any clout to demand anything. The question I have is what's curious about the whole Wicked Lester thing because they were signed, I guess, to CBS, and they walked. They, you know, famously, they said, "Well, we we didn't we didn't you know it didn't live up to our expectations, and we walked away from the deal." Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, I don't know how you walk away from a record that's deal not because how it that's works. they get an advance. They're obviously somebody owes somebody some money, and to recoup that advance, it was the guitar player, whatever his name was. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the story. Is. That's one of the curiosities to me. Is like they had to have bought, bought themselves out of that at some level but to, not to be able to walk that. away from it. I know they ended up buying those recordings about six or eight years later when Kiss really peaked yeah. in the late seventies to prevent those recordings from coming out. So it, you know, I don't know if that was, you know, obviously those recordings belong to CBS until. Kiss purchased them, but I don't know. Nest egg ready. (laughs) I don't, you know, I don't know how that works. I don't, you know, the 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 deal could have been, you know, not they maybe they didn't get it in advance. I don't know how it worked, but obviously they walked out of that. They were able to get free of it for whatever reason, and they record the the demo with Eddie Kramer. What songs exactly are all on that? Uh, I can pull that up. I've got it pulled up in a separate tab, but I've actually got a really piece of cool information kind of connecting everything you were talking about. And it really just puts it all within context. So this was completed on March 13th of 73. The final Wicked Lester showcase 
was November of 72. Right, so that's a pretty rapid turnaround. Yeah, because so, it says right here, the band was only two months old when they recorded those Eddie Kramer demos. Yeah. They, and uh, uh, on those demos, get that pulled up right over here, yeah, we've yeah, got Deuce, early, we've got Strutter, Cold Gin, Watching You, yeah. and Black Diamond. And if you listen to these recordings, they, they have these, they're really, they're so, like, compared to what becomes the album recordings, there are a lot there's like extended passages between the verse and the or from a chorus to another verse runner mm-hmm. in particular yeah they're they're a lot longer and 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 a little more jammy mm-hmm. yeah and it's almost like in some of it it almost feels like they don't really Guitars, have it together the guitar solos there's completely a mistake different. in one of them that's really obvious I can't remember which one. You can hear it. Oh, I think it's watching you. I think it's one of the notes they hold on that. Everybody else is here. I don't. I can't remember. It might be more than one, but you can tell they're it's it's being put together quickly and cheaply. But yeah. it's still they're surprisingly strong. I mean, you you can hear that 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 the the idea is there, and just needs to be refined just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and. And here's a little bit of studio info. And I think info. that the, the demos almost are, they, they have a little more oomph power and speed than the studio that. versions. That and I think up. the reason being is even the way they recorded it. It said they recorded in Studio B with the old-fashioned way, four-track. And the engineer, Dave Whitman, said, look, you're going to help engineer this. We're going to do it the old-fashioned way. We're going to do it four-track and go two to four to four. So, uh, or four to two to four, rather. And that's what we did. Those demos were amazing. I still have a copy of them today. So, essentially, what that meant was they recorded everything in four track, bounced it down to two, mm. saved that tape, recorded an additional four track while playing it on the back end. And those were the that's, overdubs. Yeah, yeah, that's how they would, yeah, they bounce tracks. Mm-hmm. That yes, was, that and was I think that's part of the reason. And because they probably were touching the reds a little bit and it had a little bit more oomph and it kind of gave them a little bit more aggression and dangerousness. Well, they're also, you can tell by some of the stuff they're doing. They're, I mean, obviously they're aware of what it is they're trying to do and what what the purpose of these tapes are. But you can also hear that they're a lot less probably self-conscious than what they'd be later on. There's right. the, the kind of playfulness at the end of uh, Firehouse where they... Where they just mimic the fire engine, with you know, and one of them goes, and one of them goes, honk, honk, you know, <laughs> and you know, there's there's a there's a point at the beginning of one where they kind of launch into the song and they stop and they recount it and go again, um, you know, it, it's all you if if all you had at that point was that demo without the visual to it, you know, it's still a solid hard, hard rock, rock band, yeah, absolutely. You know? And I think this is important to note because so many people get hung up on the visuals, as, as Paul Stanley has famous, famously said, they listen with their eyes. And, you know, that was a bit, very beneficial thing, but musically, Kiss were coming together as a pretty adept hard rock band. They weren't doing like what so many of these other New York bands were, which was very Stonesy derivative. Exactly. You know, uh, they were, you know, very, a lot of these bands kind of boogied. Um, you know, as great as the dolls are, you know, they were not, you can't really correlate musically the dolls to kiss no. outside of it being guitar based hard rock. Yeah. Um, Androgynous type singer, maybe. Well, you know, the, the dolls were, I don't know the dolls, you know, you can see that stones dynamic with, 
you know, David Johansson and Johnny Thunders is, you know, Mick and Keith. Um, but you know they were they were they were just much more of a uh, kind of a you know they were the party band and they were the the you know it, it was exciting and it was energetic and it was it was I mean the New York Dolls are great you can't you know you can't sit here and say oh they they suck compared to Kiss because that's just not true I mean they weren't Kiss and Kiss weren't the Dolls and you know in a lot of ways they complemented each other probably in ways that neither of them would care to acknowledge or admit um you know in a way kiss were like the shadow side of the dolls you know the dolls were very you know technicolor flamboyant mm-hmm. you know they had that androgynous you know kind of thing but kiss was just and black white. and silver and white and 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 leather and and they you know Whereas uh, the dolls had the more of a bounce and it was danceable and you know it was it was the the band the the girls would go see the Kiss was the band the boys would go probably see probably very much yeah you know it's kind of like Kiss was a lot more direct it was you know and and um, so you can see where there was going to be a, a contrast to the point of of a competition and and Kiss were not necessarily as readily welcomed into that new york scene and i don't think they really cared about it and and armed with their demo they had a, a you know kind of a little bit of a lead i mean obviously the dolls had their record deal and were already off into their own orbit but um where does uh neil bogart come into the picture well you know the whole thing kind of hinges on they they these shows they play um like like we were talking about the the loft show in early seventy three, which would have been around the same time they did the demo. Uh, so that was kind of what that those arrangements, I'm sure, are what people saw. You know? Right. And I know they made an impression. Uh, most famously, uh, Rick Rivets, who had been in, um, was he? What, I think he was in the Brats. You know, they who they I think they played with that night, and they were like, Ugh, you know these guys are better than we are, you know, and that probably added to the jealousy of it. Um, and I want to say I've read there, um, Gail Popolardi, who was Felix Popolardi's wife from mountain. Is this the Gail Popolardi that killed, killed Felix? Yeah, at the would end? later kill Felix. But, uh, I think she was at this show because I want to say that Felix Popolardi came to the, the famous diplomat show that Bill of Coin saw. I was about to ask that too. Yeah, now this is you know in in the in the lineage they do the show the summer of seventy three, and Bill Coin and Sean Delaney, and I want to say can't remember if Joyce Biowitz went with them or not. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. She ended up marrying Neil Bogart, but that was later. Bill and Joyce had what they called direction plus, I think is what it was called was a management company. They were starting, which would become rock steady. Uh, and Neil Bogart had been involved in television production, which is kind of important to think, you know, he's seeing kiss on another level. He's now. seeing it from the theatrical side. He's seeing it from a visual side saying this, you know, and knowing that television is going to be an important part in promotion Bill coming too, right? into the future. Was it, Bill was involved with the TV production That's what too. I'm talking right? about. Oh, okay, I thought you said Neil. Oh, did fault. I say Neil? I might have. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm 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 
thinking I'm trying to think three steps ahead of myself here. Right. <laughs> so Bill Coin has seen this and 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 signs you know offers them a management deal, but it's a very short term kind of thing. He's saying, I think it was like a six week contract. And yeah, and basically saying like if I can't get you a record deal, if in I can't this get you a record time, deal, then we'll we'll just call it even. Yeah. But he already had a working relationship with Neil Bogart and knew that Neil Bogart was leaving uh, Kama Sutra Records. I think is where he was at. Which was I don't know who they were a subsidiary of or whatever. He this was launching Warner here. Yeah, I was going to say oh, they might have been with Warner's because he was starting Casablanca, which was also going to be a subsidiary for Warner. Um, and so that was already kind of in play. Um, there's another story saying that uh, you know Neil had worked with Kenny Kerner and Richie Wise, who had produced. Uh, probably their biggest success was the group Stories at that point that did the song Brother Louie. Right. They produced that, and I think they did, I don't know if they did Midnight Train to Georgia or not. They did it was Gladys Knight. They were, you know, but they had yeah. they had, had a little bit of success. Uh, Richie Wise was also playing in a band called Dust. Mm-hmm. Okay, featuring so one Marky Mark Ramone. Ramon. Well, Mark, Mark Bell. Bell at the oh, time. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and... And so, uh, you know, they zeroed in on that Kiss demo, and we're like, this, this is where we need to go. So I don't know exactly how all that folds together, if it just sort of all happened simultaneously as a, you know, how the industry works. perfect storm of events. But obviously they got signed as the, as the first act signed to Casablanca, and they were signed, though, primarily on the strength of their music. Yep. Because Neil Bogart had not yet seen this, theatrics that they were going to do nope they had only heard the demo and and so just on the strength of the music alone they saw the potential and were going in with you know with that as as their pitch as their pitch so and like i think it wasn't until like after they recorded the record and like they were going to do a showcase or something that like neil finally saw no, they did the a showcase thing. first it was a launch party for casablanca wasn't it they did a showcase before casablanca they did a they did a now you know I, I need to have this in front of me. I've, I've got I've got the uh, it says casablanca held a party at century a, plaza well, no, hotel this, the, that was in after the album they did a, a, a at a in some sort of small play rehearsal room. Okay. They did they you know I'm, I'm I think I'm complete, conflating two different events. There's the famous story where uh, and I think this was the first time Neil Bogart saw him, and they did it in this room. And they didn't they, you know they played like 30 minutes and they there's they were a small small room of according to legend. Oh, I know which one you're and, talking about now. And when they got done, you know he was just completely shell shocked and just didn't know how to react. And Gene walked over to him and grabbed his arms and made him physically clap his hands together. <laughs> and that's when Sean Delaney kind of pricked up and was like, these guys are going to make it. Yeah. But I want to say they did something with, um, I don't know if this is right or not. Well, I'll, I'll let you know. I'm not sure I'm... if they did a similar thing where they had the, they did a thing with, um, I want to say it was Mo Austin from, Warners who came and saw it and didn't see anything in it and just was like, no. And, and I think that was in a similar situation. I want to say there was this thing where it's like a half a song in someone left and like they stuck around. Uh, That sounds about right. But all this was moving towards anyway, I guess it's kind of moot, but they got the deal with Casablanca. 
and recorded the first album in I guess October of '73. Uh, recorded uh, in the Bell Sound Studios October through November of '74. Yep. No, it would have had to been '73. The album comes out in '74. Well, it was. Uh, oh yeah, it might have been '73. Yeah, yeah, so so yeah, you're looking at the uh, April 24 Kiss and Time re-record. They they re-recorded Kiss and Time in uh, April. So they record the album in October of '73. Now yes. think of the timeline here. In in October of '72, I don't even think. I mean, they were still doing Wicked Lester. Mm-hmm. And just in that year, they've gone through. Getting out of the Wicked Lester deal. Starting over. Starting over. Finding first Peter and then Ace. And then recording the demo. (laughs) Playing these in only a handful of shows. Yeah. And to the point to where they got the record deal. And again, the only group that had a record deal in New York City was the Dolls. Yeah. But the Dolls probably had more of the primo deal because they were on a more respected label. With Mercury, but uh, got Todd you know, Rundgren to produce the record and, and Todd all that. Rundgren to produce the record. And I think everyone, all eyes were on the dolls. Yeah, and I don't think anyone had any, you know, wouldn't have put their money on Kiss at that point. Here's actually a really interesting little tidbit since we want to talk about just how lightning fast they shot out of the gate after that record. Immediately after the record, uh, they started their first album tour in uh, in Edmonton on February fifth, seventy four. Few weeks later, they made their first TV national appearance in ABC's In Concert, aired March 29th, and then they did the Mike Douglas show March 29th. Well, go back a little also, bit. Yeah, At also what point? The so same they started. Day. Okay, I knew the first. Let's before we get to the tour, let's talk about the record. Yeah, yeah. I was just throwing that as just a little side note since you're talking about just how quick. So the the records recorded in October of '73. Yes. Um. Well, let's talk about that. They, like I said, they had Kenny Kerner and Richie Wise. Yeah. And from the way I've understood it, uh, the dynamic between Kerner and Wise was Kerner was more of the guy that coaxed the performances, while Richie Wise was more the guy that caught it on tape, did was twiddling yeah, the, the knobs, right? And the engineer pushing role. the faders, and you know. Uh, Kenny Kerner kind of takes credit for taking those demos where we talked about the extended yeah. parts and stuff and tightening them all up. Right. Saying, chop that out. Yeah, just trying you know, to keep, bring this, keep from it becoming tighter. a jam band. And, well, I don't think they were ever going to become a jam band, but taking those extended passages out of songs, tighten everything up to be shorter, tighter, more pitching, direct. Pitching singles, and, if you will. Well, yeah, I don't, you know, I, I don't know how that was decided, I guess. But so let's go look at the album though track by track all right let's do that so it kicks off the record with uh probably one of the more popular I, it's it's a weird one to say popular deep cut because you don't hear it on the radio we're talking about strutter of course yeah strutter strutter is uh, yeah it was part of their live show for years and years and years and years and years mm-hmm. but it's not like on a lot of compilation records it seems like yeah. it's not like a radio no it's staple. not right on radio a whole lot um Writers Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons. Now, how many songs in the in the Kiss catalog have the Simmons Stanley co-write? Not many, and and a lot of times you'll find these guys kind of arguing over as to who was more involved. The, the, yeah, um, so that's kind of an interesting 
co-write credit because there's not a lot of those. No, and actually, I've got all the uh, writer credits at least uh, with this release, and I'll make sure and have that for future releases since now we're bringing it up. Great, we're, we're applying rules to ourselves but on the fly. Strutter is one of the very obvious ones that they really tightened up from the demo. Right. Yeah. It's a lot longer as uh, on the demo version. It had, the like I said, the extended passages between the chorus and the verse, the second verse. There's a lot more, like I said. Solo is completely different. That, I hate saying the word jam because you get a certain connotation. I know But it's mean, a lot, it seems a lot looser on the demo. Here we go. Getting rid of the last little bit of Wicked Lester DNA and habits. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah, you know what? That might be true. That's probably mm-hmm. had something to do with it. Yeah, so so if we don't really want to say jam, we'll just say it's the last gasp of them trying to get rid of the Wicked Lester sound. And you named it. Well, I was going to say, where does Strutter land with you guys? Oh, it's, I'll, I'll ask that with each song. Okay. It's easily in my top three on the album, and, you know, it's one of their best tunes. I've I've played We're it to death. We're a little biased. We're a little, little biased. I've played it to death. I've listened to it to death. It still sticks with me. I still like the song. I mean, the, and those you know guitar solos that Ace puts on it are you know still timeless to me. Yeah, I and think it's a it's a uh, lyrically it's more in sync with that that New York glam glitter yeah. vibe. It's it sounds like it's written to be stylized in that that kind of way. I don't think musically it comes off quite that way. I think maybe that was where he was going with it, but once it got once it got interpreted by the band, you know, but it's the it's got more of that swagger than you know, than some of the more punchier direct stuff of like Cold Gin or Deuce. Mm-hmm. It's a lot, so it's closer to a Dolls vibe, right? In a, in a sense, you know, I don't think it reaches that level at all. But I think you can see it. Try, it's trying to lean that way. It more has that DNA. But, but the but the group is bucked it into being their own thing. Yeah. Anything with the next track? Nothing to lose. Yeah, nothing to lose is probably one of my least favorite Kiss songs. Really, I don't think I've ever cared for that song. Really, yeah. I love the riff. The lyrics are just goofy as shit but yeah i'd say i mean that's fine i don't have a problem with it being goofy lyrics or whatever yeah um to me it's 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 interesting i don't think it sounds like a quintessential kiss song i don't think it has that same kind of writing style or anything about it it sounds like an anomaly on that record to me Compared to everything else, the only thing, oh, well, the, the worst, we'll get to the most anomalous track on the record in a minute, but, you know, it doesn't seem to fit the same vibe. It doesn't seem to be of the same mold as far as the writing style. And it I know it's become like a more traditional song. music sounding almost. Well, it's kind of got that kind of, you know, doo wop almost. The early so, 70s kind of boogie. bar. Rock it's a little, thing. yeah, it's a little yeah. bar. It's a little boogie. I don't know. And, but the, uh, the kind of, they they brought into the and later when they play it live they had the call and response kind of thing you yeah. know, with Peter which I think worked would have worked way better on the recording mm-hmm. if they had done it and Peter's whole vocal on it is is the best part about it yeah it really is but and I think that's what sets the song off that keeps it from just being a complete dud in my opinion that's just me I, it's not one of my favorite songs in there yeah uh, for me 
not my favorite on the record, but I love the song because of Alive and other versions I've heard of it. So I, I really like Nothing Losing. I think I'm in that same camp as Cap. I, I, I dig the riff. The mm. riff pulls me in every time. Right. And there's Cowbell in it. You got to love some Cowbell. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a lot of Cowbell in Early Kiss. Well, and now... And now I get to be Russ for a minute and say Firehouse is probably in my bottom three. If not, yeah, yeah, it's in my bottom three least favorites on the record. Live, it's still even a little bit of a slog to get through. But I don't know. On the record, it just, it just feels like a bump. It's a lot slower than again the 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 demo version. The demo version has a lot more forward drive mm-hmm. to it. I don't know why they slowed this tempos down i don't know whose idea that was i'm i would assume that's a kerner and wise decision um i do know that it was their decision to not really want to touch the red paul's talked numerous times about how the one thing he personally doesn't really enjoy about the record is they were dealing with producers that were used to dealing with like contemporary style singer songwriter artists and those type recording guys know they don't want any distortion well, you don't the, want to peek it here's, at all here's why i would disagree with that is just coming from the fact that those guys had you know Richie Wise was in Dust. They were a hard rock band too. I think they knew exactly where they were trying to get. Yeah, I disagree with that. I think that's I think that's revisionist history on Paul's part. I think they just they were trying to capture it as tightly as they could. I yeah. think they were, you know, I think that kind of speed back then was sort of uh, foreign to music. Not a lot of groups played, and uh, you know, we're looking at things now with hindsight right and people forget how crazy fast that first ramones album sounded at the time oh, listen yeah. to it now it doesn't seem like it's fast because we know we've had thrash and hardcore and blah 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 mm-hmm. but at the time you know that kind of stuff they were trying to think to pull out more of like i said a swagger almost danceable kind of feel yeah you know and i think that was part of the reason why is because when when they were charging along at full steam like on those demos it kind of pulled that ability that danceable ability or whatever and i think they were probably very much thinking like that yeah and you know and i guess just with on this it just didn't land because i feel that no, there's a very danceable song on this record it, you think there is yes okay well have we got there no oh well, then we'll discuss when we yeah. get there but it plods i think you know some of these songs kind of plod mm-hmm. i think compared you know when the kiss alive comes up a few years later and that's more definitive versions of these songs but yeah so yeah where, where's that land for you cap I, same deal bottom three that's just kind of one of those where it feels like you know that's just uh, a live a live song you know that's one of those that didn't need to make a record per se but it could have been a little faster you know it's a even the riff and the lyric still feels a little lazy to me as a stanley right it's yeah it's him claiming he's rewriting a song called fire brigade by the group the move move were very influential on paul stanley's songwriting at least he's up front about it at least he he didn't try he absolutely admits it yeah and um i I mean if you listen to fire brigade it doesn't sound to me anything like firehouse but i think it was just the generalized idea of fire fire fighting for your the lyric is a little a little a little i mean there's some clever lyrics in it but just the concept firehouse is kind of silly sets my soul afire again great artist steal so well you know good artist personally i like the song but i think it's i don't know it's it's still it doesn't 
it doesn't really rank with what what they would eventually rise to. I wouldn't sh- I wouldn't introduce this to a new Kiss fan, you know, if I was going to give them a gateway song. Then after that, we've got Cold Gin written by the one and only Ace Fraley. This one I would show somebody new. <laughs> this that that song is I mean, it's, the bottom line is it's a great song. There's so much interesting stuff to point at on this one track. The fact that if if you listen to it closely, you realize that they've really done some work as far as figuring out who's going to play what and how because mm-hmm. that's not one big riff. I no. mean, it, it's three different guys playing three different, complete different parts. That bass line is all over the place. doing a bass walk the entire and time. What Ace, Ace is, is doing playing, a different chord progression. What Ace is playing on guitar is not what Paul's playing on guitar, but it all melds together to make the one great big riff. Yep. So what you hear is, you know, obviously the song, the ba 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 But they're all playing different stuff. And that you realize how clever they really were as writers. Mm-hmm. Speaking on the clever bit, the breakaway. Now, that's, that's Gene. Gene wrote that. He wrote that bit? Yeah. I can see that. I the, like that bit a lot. They had it, and they just dropped it in there. Well, yeah. Even the ace riff, you know, it's it'd be super easy for us as guitar players to play it, but it's also one of those where it's like, who the fuck comes up with that? Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. I totally get it. That and time signature think, and everything. I think it's one of the two best songs on the album, and I think it stands as a classic for a reason, because it's just, you know, it's got a, a good dirty vocal off of Gene. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a, it's, you know, to it's me, great, cause it's... because he doesn't drink. <laughs> well, yeah, but, I mean, that's... You don't know that. Right. You know, you don't know anything about them at this point, and that's part of the... Part of what makes it appealing in a way. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say I probably don't love it as much as you do, but everything else I would echo. I'd put it in my top three. I just wouldn't say it's necessarily like a quintessential Kiss song or like, you know, top three or, you know, top five greatest even. I think it's a quintessential Kiss song. I personally do. I think it's... can't not have that at a set, you know, at a Kiss set. It's a great raunchy song. Yeah. You know, I I think it's part of what makes this album as strong as it is oh yeah like i said i definitely put it in my top three i just probably wouldn't love it i don't know if i put it in my top three that's tough it's it's neck and neck with you know who i what i have in my top three you know well honestly it's no it's very easy for me this next one is definitely in my top three let me know i love this one Stanley too. right that this is the one i say is fully danceable I, I think this has a great groove to it. It, it kind of harkens back to almost a Beatles-type vibe, even with uh, Gene's little boom, 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 you know, on his bass. I, I think this is probably my favorite track on the record next to Strutter. I wish they would have done the uh, version they would do on, you know, demos and stuff like that, as opposed to what they wound up with on the album with that big, and then you let me know. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, the demo goes on a lot longer let with the whole extended, know. yeah. I love that. Well, I think that was also how they were doing it live, and I think they continued they to do it live like that even after the album came out. They did, yeah. Uh, that coda that they put on it on the record, uh, obviously they ended up putting on, uh, well, different places at different parts, I guess. I don't know. They, I think they, it they smacked it on she. at the end of Cold... Uh, yeah, uh, she, 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 yeah. yeah. But I don't know that they were playing She at this point yet. So I don't know, you know, I don't know if they wrote that part intentionally for that for the album right 
you know i don't know wh- where that was being used at that time that's a good question you don't um, see any info on that anymore. you know what i think it might have been see, cold is, gin because i feel like that winterland show comes out of cold gin well like i think they put it in different places at different times yeah it was always before but uh, to have it solo. recorded in that uh, you know but it seems like a contrast to the song let me know it's almost like something it, way different it's a, it, yeah it's all of a sudden they go into a uh, a left field thing and it seems like an afterthought it's kind of a sloppy transition i mean it's not sloppy it's not done sloppily it's just but hard. it does it it's it's a weird transition to make at the end of a song like let me know which like it you is. said it's very poppy you know and i think it's important to note at this point just how important it is that they were more pop influenced when i say pop i mean like 60s our pop uh the beatles they were much more beatles than black sabbath and i think it shows on this song and, tremendously. and it shows on this song and i think it shows in the undercurrent of what they would continue to do as songwriters mm-hmm. um you know i never thought of kiss as a quote-unquote heavy metal band i never no. did either they were a muscled up pop band yeah i mean you know i'd agree Pop on steroids. They were a hard rock band, and they—I mean—they were great at it. And I don't—I don't—I don't say that as an insult at all. Oh. Where does uh let me know land for you, Captain? It's definitely in my top three. It's a great song, and again, I wish they would have done it the other way. <laughs> <laughs> Do it the other way. No, I love the bass line in it. I love the uh, the melodies in it. I love that it just kind of bounces, and it's not just like a. You know, it's kind of like Strutter, where there's like a little bit of a walkie, you know, bounced in the bass and things like that too, and the drums do you know are great with complimenting it something else i like about it that we don't get a lot in kiss songs is a gene and paul dual vocal yeah yep. there's, there's only like three or four songs like that mm-hmm. and Maybe. i so and i like that contrast of like gene doing a verse paul picking yeah, up a verse I it's think, pretty yeah, cool that, that's something they always did really well when they when they did do it yeah and complete and to, like total side note but semi on topic i think the best one they ever did like that was fast forward way in the future their cover of um uh, rock and roll radio i thought that was really cool how like gene and paul kind of passed, passed the, the verses back, back and, and forth. forth but yes yeah, so i thought that was cool but then right after that not on the initial pressing yep but on the uh like quick second run they quickly pushed out after they realized it wasn't selling very well Well, i don't think it had even so much to do with it it wasn't selling well they you know neil bogart was from uh Talking about Kissing Time, of course. Yeah, yes. the song Kissing Time was Neil Bogart's idea. And he wanted to, they tied it into these kissing contests, which really they were yeah. trying to use. It had two two purposes. Part of it was the idea was, oh, this will help promote the Kiss album. But more importantly, they were trying to promote Casablanca. Yeah. They were putting and it they on TV using, shows, too. They were using Kiss. I think the attitude was Kiss was probably almost a, you know, a write-off. They were okay. It would, they were Casablanca would have been okay to fail, have Kiss fail, if it meant it established Casablanca. Yeah. Now, what was going on as all this happened was, and this is very important to the history of of the band. It was Casablanca was a subsidiary of Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers had no faith in Kiss because, like I said, I think Mo Austin had already seen it and said, nope, and issued a directive and i think it's in writing and this is how it and they got a hold of it to not you know to their rack jobbers is what they call these guys not to push the casablanca record because it's this kiss record and we don't really think this is going to do anything mm-hmm. well of course that didn't sit well with neil bogart nor should it 
So he was able to negotiate an out from yeah. the distribution, you know, having Warner. So yeah, the earliest it, Kiss record, the first album, the earliest pressings of that were is manufactured and distributed by Warner Brothers. Yeah. And those are kind of rare to find now to find Warner Brother issued. Actually, I was literally just turned around me. I was checking. I was checking the wall, but uh, <laughs> I've still got an issue. I've actually still got a copy of the first album that you gave me. Yeah, that doesn't have Kissing Time on. Yeah, it. She picked it up at a uh, at a garage sale. I've got. I've had. I've, I've been lucky. I found several copies of that over the years. Um, but yeah, the Kissing Time was not on the original press of it. They added that as part of a means to help promote the record label. And it was a it was a hack night idea. The band didn't like it, uh, but they did it dutifully because partly because what the hell were they going to do? Say no, right? And even, and even though it's a cover, it is cool as hell that the first lyric in it is "Come on, Charlotte." Yeah. So like mm-hmm. hearing Paul yell "Come on, Charlotte," you know, it's like I, okay, that's cool. I, yeah, I didn't recognize that as Charlotte for years. I thought he said Detroit. Really? But yeah, I, but yeah, I guess he's saying Charlotte. Which is our hometown where we're recording this from. Very correct. Uh, Cap, where's it land for you? Uh, yeah, in my bottom three, just because of what it is, and you know, I don't hate it. I, I don't, don't hate, hate the song. I don't, I don't hate it, but it's just kind of the, the there, chorus you know? is catchy as hell. Hearing Gina Paul going that, but it doesn't. It doesn't really. It doesn't blend into that record it to doesn't. me. It and it's. It just sounds. Like it's just complete. It's just completely unnecessary. And I don't know. I. It was clever that they rewrote the words. It was clever that they thought, okay, well, this get this gives everybody another moment to shine. That so Peter all, sings Peter on it too. Peter sings on it too. You know, um, you know, they should have probably given Peter a little more to do on that first record. I think. Uh, He's got backups on "Nothing to Lose," uh, vocals on "Love" uh, on uh, "Sorry, Kissing Time," and then uh, lyrics on "Black Diamond." Yeah, he does the vocal on "Black." I mean, we'll get to that, yeah, but yeah. so "Kissing Time" is sort of like you could you could erase it from the record because at one point it wasn't even part of the record. Exactly. So you know, it's it's, it's disposable track. Well, right after that, we've got another Simmons write-up with Deuce. Which is a quintessential. Yeah. I would put that one higher than Cold Gin as quintessential. It's, it's, well, yeah, I think it's, I don't like the album version of it because of that stuttered guitar. The way he oh, plays it in the mm-hmm. studio version. I didn't care for that. I like it when it's more direct. And I think it works better as a live track. But it's still a great song. It's completely nonsensical. I like that he he's not even trying to make any sense out of a lyric. No. <laughs> and, it, and, and and that's, you know, what does it all mean? It doesn't mean anything. And that's I have a theory. Perso- it doesn't, you know, but your theory isn't any more valid or less valid than anyone else's. Right. Because I don't think he had a theory. I don't think he had an idea of what any of it meant. Sometimes it you just write matter. a dumb song like that. You know, I think it, you know, Gene was always about just anything that was outlandish or weird. Yeah. And if you listen to a lot of his early songs, it's all weird. Wow, None of it makes left. sense. Yeah, he was writing, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, so that's... Stanley the Parrot. Yeah, where, where yep. do you get these ideas? It was just weird. It was just the idea, weird. Yeah. And so it's got Gene's weird lyrics that mean absolutely nothing, but 
it's still just probably one of their great songs. It's easily probably in the top five of all of their entire catalog. It's just such a great song. I, my favorite bit in it is, of course, the the outro where they just keep rocking that riff over and over, and they mm. do that sway inside to side thing, which oh, yeah. was a Sean Delaney bit. Yeah, well, that's all. And, yeah. But my theory on the lyrics, I think it's very straightforward, and I just don't think he wants to admit it. So think about it. I, I know what you're going to say. Well, then what am I going to say? Go ahead. I'm going to let you say it. <laughs> <laughs> you drop a deuce. Okay. It's all taking a shit. You know your man is working hard. He's worth a deuce. He's worth a shit. Oh, Treat okay. him right. No, that's what I, I was thinking. I think that's where it comes from. That'd be the op, that'd be the one I, the theory I went with too. But that's, like that, that's well, kind of where my brain immediately went. Like dropping a deuce, dropping a shit. You know your man's working hard. He's I worth a shit. I don't know. <laughs> that's what I always thought I mean, too. That's, but I'll that's, love- that's that's even cornier than what I thought. <laughs> no I, pun I, intended. I, yeah. yeah. Hey. Hey. <laughs> All right. Before this goes too far off we the rails, are no time to turn a kiss nerd podcast. You can hear us. Uh, all right after that um we got love theme from kiss that is the most disposable unnecessary has no point i don't understand why it existed ever on any level because they They were already playing the wrong part of the song well yeah (laughs) but even that because I think Acrobat or whatever they wanted they to call the that, demo or whatever. The whole thing, yeah. yeah there, there's when, no when, demo of that. No, it's just live clips. Yeah. But yeah, when, when Peter goes into that little jazz shuffle and they kind of do the bastardized uh, Detroit Rock City riff. Yeah. And the, yeah, 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 yeah. And I must to love. Y'all must to I don't even think that's all that great. But, uh, oh, I thought it's cool. You know, the, I, I don't understand why this even exists. It's filler, and it's obvious mm. filler. There's mm-hmm. no point for that to be on the record. I think they probably could have came up with something better, and I don't know, time or just effort or but whatever. But we're not the authority. On we're not yeah. the authority, but I'm just saying it's, it's – I've never understood it. I don't I, hate it, though. You know, It's like as a musical piece, I don't hate it, but – well, it explain is absolute- it real quick because I'm not really in love with it. So, what what draws you into it? The guitar playing, you know, being you know being in love with guitar sounds and stuff like that. I love it, but Russ well, is absolutely I'll, I'll right. The, I'll do the devil's advocate bit for you since we 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 banter a good bit. We can do this a little. Uh, I feel the guitar riff is very repetitive and monotonous. Like after the first like 45 seconds, I'm like, cool, I got it. It is, and the point I was going to make is that uh, Russ is absolutely right. It is filler. But it's still cool to listen to for you know a couple minutes. It's kind of like the uh, coda at the end of "Let Me Know." It feels like they were cr- they crammed all of their ideas they had at the time into yeah, this record, and this you know, is, is try to we had document to take. it. Well, obviously it didn't because there was a lot more to that song that they cut out. Yeah. So you're right. It seemed it would seem a little backwards that they would have the more up tempo rock song as to do it. I don't know whose idea that was. That could have been a Kenny Kerner or Richie Wise idea. Maybe, you know, use maybe. that part. And it's also interesting to note, I think it, it might be the only song in the entire Kiss catalog that is credited to all four individual yep. members. I and think you're right. Yeah, right here. Which, which uh, you know, I don't know if that says something positive or negative. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you don't, don't see a lot of Peter Chris co-writes. Yeah, well, that's true. Then uh, right after, I feel like we're all kind of in agreement on that one. After that, we got 100,000 years, a Stanley Simmons right. 
I love that song. I, I think, do too. I think it's a quintessential Kiss song. I do I, love this one. I think it's it's you know. I think it's based on a Gene idea, but I think it's all Paul basically that wrote the, the, the whole thing. I think Gene had a maybe the line. It sounds like some Gene I've, lyrics. I've, I've read, Spacey, I've read, I've read, I've read kinda, them. I've futuristic. Read, I've read some stuff about them talking about it, and you know, um, Paul seems to kind of claim the whole ownership of it. But I think but that's also a very Paul thing to do. Yeah. So I don't know, but it's it's such a badass song. There's just you know, it's got again. It's got a weird lyric. It's kind of like what? Is, what? Is, what are they talking about? It doesn't matter, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just you know, if in looking at it now, it kind of feels like they were kind of going for that kind of spacey Bowie kind of idea as That's far as you thinking. know, traveling time or whatever the fuck it is. Yeah. But it, it's still just a badass raunchy. Oh yeah. You know, and Great to me, it's riff. got the yeah. It's that feels like what Kiss is to me. That whole song, and it, and to me, I you know, you could, I think you could play that song cold to someone that never listened to Kiss at all, and mm-hmm. and win them over on that. I think so. Because the guitar riffs in it and the solo, especially the solo, they come back into because because uh, Ace does one solo and then it goes to the little drum breakdown mm-hmm. with Paul on top of sorry to have taken yeah, yeah, so yeah, long yeah, yeah. and when they bust back into it and Ace finishes up his solo oh my god like that is like it gives me chills just because it's that little harmony walk up he does that it's fun to hear like when when they did the reunion and ace was talking about having to relearn that stuff and how he was like how did i write that (laughs) (laughs) because it is it's totally spacey and awesome it's really cool stuff i think i think you know that's in a Easy top five, probably of all time. Kiss. I'm here. That used to be my now, favorite. You know, we're going to say this. I'm going to end up with like 15 top five all time. Right. By the time we get to the end of this whole run, but well, we wouldn't be kiss nerds yeah. if that wasn't the case. That used to be my uh, favorite tabletop drum beat. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. yeah. Just kind of like just happen, you know, just as a nervous habit or whatever. <laughs> All right, then wrapping up the record is Black Diamond, a solo Stanley Wright. We got. Yeah. Peter singing on this one. Yeah, I guess they had to give Peter something to do. They should have given. Well, yeah, maybe he was. I don't know, but they should have given him more to do because I mean, his voice was so. You know, that voice worked. You know, they talked about nothing but negative things to say about his voice. Like even straight up, like he couldn't carry a tune if it was in a bucket type shit. You know, that's there might be a, a, an element of truth to that, but there's also a sizable element of probably professional jealousy because Peter's voice was so, so kind of unique. He had that, had raspy, vibe, you know, know? And, and, and it was really a secret weapon that they had and they could, you know, could use it. It was, it was there when they needed it and they needed it for a song like black diamond. I mean, honestly, I don't think, that any of them could have done that as well as Peter had. I know I was picturing Paul or Gene singing that now and just kind of, you know, it would feel weird. Oh, you know, there's there's other points where I could see Peter, maybe they could have used him, you know. I think he could have done a good vocal and let me know. Yeah. I think that would have suited his style very well. Totally. Um, But they probably didn't want that because they wanted to have the whole uh, Paul and, you know, John kind of Beatles harmony kind of going. And they're like, oh, Peter and his raspy voice probably couldn't do it. They had the idea that all four were going to be individual. You know, they they were modeling themselves 
subconsciously on the Beatles in, in, in as much as they wanted each guy to have individual character and an individual voice on, mm. on each record. Ace wasn't singing at that point. Ace wrote... He just chose not to, though, right? He chose not to. I don't think he felt confident enough to sing, which is understandable. Um, You're like, I'm not going to say anything about no, that. I'm not, <laughs> no, I'm saying if you don't feel confident. I, I think Ace had a good voice. I think he had a good rock and roll voice. But it took just, him a while it, to, find, to get to, comfortable with it. He had to get comfortable enough to do it. Um, what's interesting about the song, though, is how, how again, this is a recorded version versus the live version. Yeah. It just plods. It doesn't, you know, that song really needed that speed and that immediacy and urgency that it had in the live. Kind of like Firehouse. But on the on the record, it just sort of plods. And then to make it worse, at the end, they do those long droning notes, <laughs> and that seemed like and that's just filler. That seems like that's just to sp- fill space it. on a on a record. Yeah, because the total length of the record is thirty five minutes uh, eleven seconds. It yeah. just makes me think of like you know you ever listen to like James Brown tracks where he's just like you know playing with his band and it's supposed to be their <laughs> live set or whatever, but it's just them mm. in a studio, so it just feels awkward. James like. Can't uh, yada yada over here yeah. it's like James we're in a fucking studio there's nobody here <laughs> well you know it's a it's a different thing with a different vibe the the kiss thing needed that kind of immediacy like the bring it up a little bit they should have sped it up it just it, it really drags you can tell and maybe you wouldn't be able to tell or even think about it if they didn't have the live album to contrast it to and, I love Black Diamond though well I love the song that is like seriously I, trust me, a it's a great song oh I, yeah you know I think you know I think the idea behind that was the subject matter is that it's supposed to be about a prostitute yeah and you know that was kind of a cool kind of idea and um you know, bringing in some shade of darkness that they wouldn't normally go to. You mm-hmm. know, certainly by the late seventies, they would never write a song like that in nineteen seventy nine. But this is uh, also early seventies in New York, yeah, and, and they were a, all hanging out at those spots too. It's completely, yeah, it's very completely a New York thing. And, and and actually, with it being a Stanley ride, he was a cab driver at the time, so he probably saw yeah. a lot of that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, no doubt. You talking to me? Yeah, and uh, Paul Stanley, you talking to me? (laughs) And honestly, uh, I don't see anyone else here. (laughs) That was good. That was. Uh, We ought to uh, for when we do higher than hell, we ought to do this part before we go into the track listing. But uh, let's talk about the album cover. Right now, there's a lot of different stories about that. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What What's the story that you tend to lean on? what I think the true story is. Yeah. I believe the photographer is named Joel Brodsky. Yes. And he did, uh, the doors. Um, was it the, so you got the famous Jim Morrison, you know, spread, spread arm. I don't know if he did Morrison hotel or not, but anyway, yeah, he had done, you know, he was a, he was a noted photographer. They had him come in, the story that sometimes the band tells is that he showed up with balloons. Yeah. Saying, you're clowns, right? Here's the balloons. And I don't think, and he says that wasn't true. And I agree. I don't think he had that idea. Um, they had hired, apparently they had hired a, a professional makeup artist to help them apply their makeup, which is why Peter all of a sudden has this ornate makeup design that he and never used ever. And the origins of that. The makeup? Yeah. 
So that actually did have a very interesting origin that uh, someone from the uh, the Kiss FAQ message board dug up. Uh, maybe about, geez, I want to say almost maybe eight years ago at this point. No, but do, it, we know, it was like do a, we know this is factual or is this just something that came up on a message board? Uh, I feel like by the time I finish explaining, it's pretty factual. Okay, um, well, lay it on us. So someone was able to find a Halloween mask dated in the mid-60s. That was supposed to be a tiger mask, and it had the red triangle on the chin, the sectioned off whiskers. The only thing that was really different was the eyes, and this. And now people are kind of truly believing it's like that. This mask may have been the partial inspiration from that because they always talk about the kabuki masks and this, that, and the other. I feel like that may have been a partial inspiration from that uh, makeup artist. Like she brought that in and was like, the man let's I even do brought this. it in. I could see them maybe having had it at some point and remembering it going, Oh, I remember I used to have this mask. that had this and, yeah. and just did it. But that's the only time he ever had that only makeup design. And it was for their debut album, which was like not a good idea. But then, you know, they want to, and that's one of the things they speak negatively on Peter about for some uh, reason. But say, really, if you look, all their makeup designs are kind of still in beta stages. Yeah. I jeans mean, always change. Jeans changed a lot. So, you know, I mean, the, the point was obviously they were doing a playoff of Meet the Beatles. Right. Yep, which I'm sure was a very conscious decision, a very conscious and deliberate decision. I think it's interesting to note that Ace has spray painted his hair silver. Yeah, exactly. And he didn't dye his hair silver. He spray, spray painted, painted it to try to impress the guys in true Ace fashion. <laughs> Which is just—I mean, come on. What do you say? Listen, to that? The story I've always read with like the makeup though is that everybody else applied their own makeup except Peter. But that just yeah. sounds like another excuse to shit on Peter for I no good reason. That, but they may be true. I don't know. I was gonna say that was part of the story I've also. But heard. if you notice, they've also painted their necks, which that's the only time you ever see that. So that's uh, you know you've got this oddball visual, but I think. Now going back to the the competition between them and the dolls, they both got very unique, stylized album covers. Both which you know the dolls never looked like that as they do on that album cover. They never dressed in full drag ever. No, and they, you know they they kind of are on that first album. They never looked like that before or after. Really, not extreme. Kiss never really looked like they do on that album cover either, but. The Kiss thing was probably a little more easily digestible than the Dolls album cover was. It was a lot less threatening. It was still a curiosity. It was like, what is this? But it didn't seem as threatening, which is ironic because Kiss were trying to be a lot more menacing right. than the Dolls. <laughs> but the Dolls were a lot more menacing just by the sheer, you know... Because they naturally were, and the folks they hung out with. Well, shit. yeah, but I'm just saying that album cover just looks a lot more... Um, and dangerous. Well, you know, let me ask you this. Kiss album. With us being kind of kiss nerds and us even kind of looking at Peter's makeup going, you know, well, he never did this again outside of this. How would we feel seeing, like, it, rewrite history? Would we like the album cover with his actual makeup design? Yeah, I'm sure. We wouldn't know any different. Yeah, I'd agree with that. You know, the only reason why it stands off as being different is because it is different, and that's the only time he ever did it. Now, if yeah. it was something that was short, you know, short-lived, that he continued to do for a while, it's sort of like the uh, era. You know, right at that same time, you know, 
and I want to say this was a Neil Bogart idea. He persuaded Paul into changing his makeup design. Yeah, to yep. the bandit. What they call it, the bandit. I don't know that they had that name. Yeah. I don't know who came up with that name. I don't think they even had names for their individual characters per se at that point. Right. But yeah, that that makeup design, which is a cool makeup design. Mm-hmm. But where, what was it? You know, what was he? You know, as as Kiss developed into quote unquote characters, mm-hmm. what would that persona have been? You know. Like, like he, I think he, I think, I, that, I think he kind of talked about it on the Tom Snyder interview where he was like uh, he's like always wanted to be like the Lone Ranger kind yeah, of kind thing of a, yeah so that yeah that kind of fits in a way but I'm the Lone Bandit yeah <laughs> yeah standing on the Long Island Expressway with wind blowing through my hair I hold silver <laughs> so you you know the, it just goes to show that they're still all of them are still in flux they're still yeah. developing the whole concept they're now they're you know, but now everything is at a heightened sense of importance because they have gotten signed and they are issuing promo material. And now this is the band. But it does kind of call into question if Paul was willing to change his makeup that radically, what would it have been if they had changed their makeup kind of sporadically as they progressed, like to the point where, you know, the design's completely changed? Uh, I feel like that probably actually wouldn't have even been an option at any point because i feel like i remember paul not liking no he, he his claims design. he claims he didn't like it and that's why he reverted back to the star yeah um so i feel like maybe they kind of got attached to the alter egos and well, didn't want to deviate but too i'm wondering far. if that was even ever a considered a possibility that they could you know completely change designs yeah. fluidly as the moods uh, you know mm. and but would and, and i think if they had i'm not saying they did yeah yeah but i don't think that it would have had that impact i think keeping it the same you mm-hmm. know is, even if it's a slightly different yeah slightly different but keeping it the same kept them all with an identifiable an identifiable persona it locked everything in into a much more rigid you know identity uh, standard yeah so that all worked to their advantage i think they you know changed it a lot because i think that's something that probably hurt the dolls was that their image kind of altered a little bit as mm-hmm. they kind of kept going it was never really the same thing they didn't they didn't dress the same every every you know every photo shoot was a different thing and it was the red leather era and yeah, all that and with malcolm mclaren right, right so and, and you know they never held an identifiable kind of thing like even alice i think alice's thing locked in once he did the harlequin thing you know mm-hmm. he went from the spider eyes to the harlequin thing and it worked a lot better once he hit that harlequin never has changed since because yeah. that's alice cooper and the same with kiss so they uh you know all that is happening all at the same time but mm-hmm. by this point you, you know you got them like you said they hit the road in early february and do the canada tour and yeah. i think that was as a last minute substitution for michael quattro yeah and uh and like i said i just thought it was utterly fascinating that like literally on the same day uh, March 29th, 74, uh, the ABC's In Concert and Mike Douglas show aired. See, yeah, I don't, is that, they got them both airing the same day? Yeah, uh, to 
pull out a full quote here. A few weeks later, they made their first national TV appearance on ABC's In Concert, aired March 29, 1974, performing Nothing to Lose, Firehouse, and Black Diamond, followed by a performance of Firehouse on The Mike Douglas Show, also aired March 29, 1974. That's interesting. Part of the fun with uh, doing this is going on YouTube and finding these performances, especially the uh, the Mike Douglas interview well, I, I think you know you look at that and i think watching those performances you see how they're they're getting to where they're going but they're a little unrefined they're still playing more to the speed of the record right. it's almost like they're mimicking the record they've gone away from what the demo was which i imagine was what they were going into recording the record and now they're changed to reflect what is on the record so people know what they're going to get when they buy it so those songs still sound like a little bit you know and they famously they altered the when they did the ABCs in concert, you know, they came away with it with a kind of a negative take on it, saying they didn't feel like it was exciting enough, and they tried to add these kind of weird special effects. Yeah, those fireworks in, that yeah, are like you know in the background, yeah, it, you know, to try to liven it up yeah. a little bit. And also to uh, to even further instate what you're talking about with the the fast transition of going into the studio with the demo sound and now having to only a few weeks later now have to play the album sound uh, right here at the very top i'm surprised we didn't even mention this uh when we started it uh richie was stated that the recording mixing and mastering took 13 days jesus yeah. imagine doing all that in 13 all of us have been in studios in oh. different styles imagine doing all of that in 13 days yeah. cocaine in the 70s baby well i, I, I <laughs> doubt that was much in play at that point and certainly not for not for casablanca yet it will casablanca would become quite the drug-fueled yeah. operation <laughs> that was that was uh, after a live so we've well, got a couple more episodes before we get but, to there but uh you know them going now just into going out on the road as yeah. a live act and now getting their early prom promotional appearances like we said the abc in concert um the mike douglas show which mm -hmm. where he famously got skewered by uh Tody Fields. Yeah. Wouldn't it be funny if he was just a nice Jewish boy underneath yeah, that makeup? Yeah. You can't hide the hook is yeah. what she says. Yeah. yeah, Jesus like, you should only know. Just very She's sheepishly. like, oh, I know. She's like, I know. You and, can't and, hide the and, hook. But what makes that work, I think, and in, in, in we look at it now and, and, and laugh because we're laughing at him. But I think if I were a kid tuning in and seeing that you know, after school one day and I would think, that old lady's out of touch because that, that guy's cool. Uh, you know, yeah, you know right, yeah. it, I think that probably you know cemented uh, a certain a certain uh, as their fan base is growing. You know, they're really they're something that's different. It's outlandish, and you know that old lady's out of touch. Yeah, she's like this, visibly rolling yeah, her eyes and, and opening her eyes. So it, you know, in hindsight, we go, "Oh, he looks stupid," and probably to a certain segment of the audience at that time, he looked stupid. But for another segment of the audience, she looks stupid for having going there and yeah. honestly in retrospect i feel like he played it off very well because think about it you're gene simmons and he's discussed already before that they were like you know who's gonna go out there and talk and he's like i guess yeah. i am yeah. you know he wasn't really prepared to do it and they've already been coached by bill with the whole keep your identity secret so yeah. he's really trying to be a character talking about biting the yeah. necks of audience yeah, members all of that top, though but but then all of a sudden she goes wouldn't it yeah, be yeah. nice if he was a little jewish boy underneath yeah, that yeah. makeup all of a sudden you gotta think 
he's not prepared for this in the slightest. That probably broke him down immediately. And for the fact that she was just like, you know, yeah, you know, you can't hide the hook. He just started kind of just scrunching his nose up at her and giggled and moved on. I thought he actually navigated that extremely well. And then they yeah. plugged that uh that kiss co- uh, contest, contest that we were uh, well, that talking was, about yeah, earlier. And then yeah, that they had well that was over. But then those were the people that won it. Yeah. So and then <laughs> they're like supposed to win a cruise and some shit, and then they're oh oh they're supposed to go to a kiss concert and they're like oh we're just gonna send you on a cruise no, instead i, I don't that, remember like, what the the winning was but i mean it was a kiss concert in canada but then that had to get canceled and yeah. then they were trying to pitch that cruise or whatever it yeah, was yeah, instead yeah. so but they go on and they they continue to tour they're opening for other groups famously getting kicked off of tours there's a lot of uh, apocryphal stories as to whether or not you want to believe them or not but some of it seems believable because apparently their road crew were some pretty nefarious types mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's road crew in the 70s. What are you going to do? Well, no, no, they were not just a road crew in the 70s. They were the KISS road crew. The and KISS road They crew. were very protective. Oh. It, was, it was like, you know, close the ranks. And these guys believed in it and, and you know, were ready to fight for it. And in ugly ways, because they were... They were their reputation as a road crew spread to other road crews. Like, have you heard, it wasn't? It, have you heard about Kiss? It was. Have you heard about this group Kiss? Their road crew's insane. Yeah. No shit. I yeah. haven't heard any any stories about uh, you know that. Well, well there, was, there's been a bunch of uh, fun Kiss podcasts and like episodes and like YouTube things of like the road crew telling old stories of that back in the day. And I don't remember names. These right guys off. wore studded leather, just like the band did. I mean, they mm-hmm. they looked like it was like, oh, here's the band. No, that's the road crew yeah <laughs> that seriously that was literally the perception they would show up and people like oh we're, there's, there, i guess that must be kissed no that's the road crew yeah the like uh hell's angels and altamont's uh kind of security mean, yeah. mix that with a bunch of pyromaniacs oh yeah. god <laughs> and 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 they were they were just a you know a group of you know tough new york guys that were good they needed that because they were being backed up there was some well, we skipped over the the premiere launch party for Casablanca, yeah. also in February of of seventy four, mm-hmm. and you know that went over like a fart in a spacesuit. <laughs> the the launch party was successful for Casablanca, but it, as a launch for Kiss, who no. played at this thing, but there was a lot of important industry people there, notably Alice Cooper, who famously quipped, "Well, you know, they're good, but what they need is a gimmick." Hardy, hardy, har, har, har. Well, didn't Warner Brothers uh, drop Casablanca after seeing uh, Kiss, and I, then going- they were still with Warner at that point, I think. But yeah, we we we, yeah, talk, it, we just discussed that a little while ago. That was you know it was somewhere in that time frame where all that kind of fell apart. Yeah, um, I'm trying to remember. Let's see who else was at that thing because that was kind of an important thing for them to do. It, like I said, it didn't go over as well as they hoped, but it. And uh, uh, Burton Cummings from Guess Who was there, and right. I think I think he was really put off by it. Um, I was so, gonna say if you wanted to look up uh, the rest of the guests, I actually have some of the sales figures talking about not so impressive. Oh yeah. well, I mean, but as an as a as an un, you know a new band out of the out of the shoot, and they're you know now not only do they not have a distribution deal, they're having to dis- they haven't you know Neil Bogart's having to go work up every uh, favor and friendship and every little back channel he can to shoestring together manufacturing and distribution deals. And that's, you know, so 
it was going to be hard for them to even sell anything when there was hardly probably anything being produced to sell. So, you know, Casablanca were in it now. They were up against the wall. And all in what they're banking on is this group KISS. So they're kind of in this symbiotic relationship. The success of Casablanca depended on the success of KISS that depended on the success of Casablanca. Yeah, and they sold 75,000 copies. If the odds are against them, bad. Yeah. Big time, bad. So, you know, this is, a, this is doomed to failure. It should not succeed. And the industry is watching. You know, they're they're keenly aware that this is happening, I'm sure. And it's but they're watching with, you know, laughter and like this. Look at this. You know, this is what the this is what music business has been reduced to. You know, watch. It's going to fail. They wear they wear at the biggest point of contingency with anything you read is because they wear makeup. Yeah, I've seen well, the, the that, one thing they, they were listening. Same, same thing we talked about last episode. They're listening with their eyes and not with their ears. Yeah, and I don't. But I also, you know, the, the the album I still don't think plays to Kiss's strength. I don't think that it's matching the impact of the visual. You know, I know people even now that say, you know, one of their hangups with Kiss is that they look one way and sound another. Yeah, but I don't see it that way because I I come from an era when it was all. It's all kiss. Yeah, it's all but part I can of the see also other people saying that at the time. I don't think that album was a very strong statement coming out of the shoot. I think yeah, I think I agree it, especially comparing it to the demo. Yeah, and and I think that you know so it kind of it's almost like a they didn't blow up on the launch pad, but they barely got up into the air. But they did. Yeah, you know, and now they're really going to have to prove it. And how are they going to prove it? Playing live. Mm-hmm. And who you know, and now they're out on the road for the first time ever and their show is going to obviously continuously get refined now obviously we we also skipped over the new year's eve show well what i was going to ask is uh so we've pretty much wrapped up conversation on the first record um for the next episode do we want to go ahead and talk about first tour or do we want to do hotter than hell we'll we'll do a little both we'll go into hotter than hell but i'd like to close with just the you know another it's important to talk about in this episode, I think, with the, that New Year's Eve show. The you know they're for all intents and purposes. I mean, they've been playing shows around New York. They get added to the show at the Academy of Music, which is the biggest show they had done so far at that mm-hmm. point. And you know, the famously Gene caught his hair on fire, blowing fire for the first time, right? And Sean Delaney put it out, and no one, you know, he people thought it was part of the show, yeah. Uh, but um, they, you know, that was a. There was two sets played that night, and Kiss only played on, I think, the first one. Mm-hmm. They were unannounced, and it was almost like they were tacked on as a favor. Yeah, and you know that show's gone down into history as 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 a legendary gig, largely just because of all the other bands that were involved that kind of got eclipsed by their opening band over time, which included Iggy and the Stooges. And Blue Oyster Cult, yeah, and you know both both are great bands in their in their own individual ways. I love both of them, but you know how are you, how are you, you know how are you, who would have thought going in that night seeing Kiss and thinking out of all these groups, you know, in in the the big opening act that was being ballyhooed at the time was the Harlots. I think were on that. Okay, so. Uh, you know, Kiss got thrown on almost as a favor, and then you you start seeing as they go through their first tour, a lot of what they're doing is getting favors called in. Mm-hmm. 
you know. And, and so th- I think it's important to say that right now they're primed not for success, but for failure. This first album is, you know, nowadays we look at it with hindsight. It's a, you know, it's the first Kiss album. It's a great album. It's classic, blah, 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 blah. But at the time, I think it probably came out as like anticlimactic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I can they're see that. struggling and they're struggling bad. There's no money. And and they get a break anywhere. Their record company is like probably not going to survive. All of this is probably going to go under. So we're kind of reaching a cliffhanger ending here, going yeah. into the next one. It's it's not looking good. So after that, we've got hotter than hell. We'll discuss that on the next episode of No Time to Turn. And want to thank everyone for uh, joining in and for. Cap Nunn and Alex Diff. I'm Russ Ward, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening. Please insert another coin by supporting the show for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash somethinggoodnetwork.